Education, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Grounded Learners Guild. Its mission, to explore strange new ideas, to seek out new connections in new and old stories, and to boldly go where no leader or educator has gone before. Live long and prosper, friends. Hit it, GLG. And remember to set those phasers to stun. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Grounded Learners Guild Pop Culture Playground. We like to do this during summer, also during winter breaks sometimes, just random times off when people like to stay connected, but also give their brains a little bit of a break. So hope for whatever's left of summer, you can have a break for yourself. And we're going to be playing our favorite game to celebrate that. Yes, and this episode is sure to be out of this world. I'm so excited. But to play this game, Six Degrees of Education, we are taking some amazing pop culture movies, music, TV shows, and in this case, movies and TV shows. And I'm pretty sure for a while, William Shatner did some music. But we're not going to focus on that one. We're going to make those connections to our world of leadership, education, and productive, high-functioning PLCs. And if you're not new around here, you know that we've got a 20-minute norm that we're terrible at, but we still try to stick to it to keep these more like mini length episodes instead of our full length episodes just to keep it short and sweet or semi-short and semi-sweet shorter (laughs) the second norm that we have is also the spoilers will follow and especially for me i can only tell you that when we talk star trek i can only remember the you know the late 80s version of star trek next generation any of the other movies that are anything after that and even the ones from was the original from the 60s casey Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the original TV yeah, show. Yeah. It was so if you haven't watched any one of these versions, there are possible spoilers. So if there's something, we'll give you the gist and you might want to fast forward through it if you don't want the spoilers, but we're going to spoil away on this one. And this is especially true for any of our listeners out there who have not seen the most recent offering in the Star Trek franchise, which is Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Paramount+. Plus. It's phenomenal. So a number of our references are going to come directly from that tonight because that's currently what's on my brain and on my current watch list. All right. So let's just jump right into whatever version of Enterprise or... <laughs> What have you? I wish I knew more ship names. Starfleet. Yeah, Starfleet. <laughs> yep, that's it. That's what I meant to say. All right. So let's jump into one that has to do with it, kind of an interesting topic is the different colors of uniforms on Star Trek. Yeah. So for the most part, the Star Trek franchise really centers around the captain and crew of Starfleet's flagship crown jewel, the Starship Enterprise. But whether you're on the Enterprise or any of the other Starfleet ships, they all have the same uniform concepts. So if you are wearing a gold color uniform in Starfleet, that represents you're in a position of command or leadership. Blue represents the sciences or medical personnel. And red, there's this like running joke that you never really want to wear red on Star Trek because you're the first to die, which is true in almost all renditions. But red uniforms are those who work in operations, engineering, and security. So each role has a different color. 
here. And to me, this very clearly ties back to our season two episode of the personality puzzle. And it's each person when they come into a coaching cycle, you kind of have to understand a little bit more about them and their role and using personality typing can help really get to the root of what their values are, what they see their role being and how you can really help move them to the next level. So that to me represents those different colored shirts. We come with different personalities, different skill sets. And as coaches, we bring that out. Very nice. And hard left. (laughs) Um, I love it. (laughs) So I really got into that idea of the red shirt thing that you just mentioned because I've known about that even without having seen a lot of Star Trek. I think it's just such like a ubiquitous (laughs) thing that we know in our culture, right? Oh yeah, the red shirts, they get killed. So I really kind of took a dive on why that is and we'll get Mm -hmm. to that in a second. But basically what I was thinking is this idea of assuming that the red shirts are going to die reminds me of making assumptions about incorrectly collected or incorrectly... compiled data so Mm. uh, data no pun intended right like he wasn't a red shirt though he was gold but it's fine very good very good (laughs) yes gotta throw that pun in there when you can so I actually ended up reading an article written by a woman named Alice Rose Dobbs for Game Rant and it was about debunking the misconception of the red shirt and what I learned from this I actually just took a screenshot so I'm going to read a very brief quote here she basically did the percentages of the active duty members wearing each color shirt and how many of them survived and so it turns out that 239 red shirts were shown and 10% of them 25 of them total were killed so what Mm -hmm. that actually it seems really bad for 25 of them to die it was certainly the highest number however there were 55 yellow shirts and 10 of them died which makes that 18% death rate so when Mm -hmm. you think of the total percentage if the data was correctly compiled and presented it would actually show yellow uniforms to have the highest rate of mortality as opposed to red shirts. And so I think we have to think about our data episode and think about data collection interpretation and doing it with care because sometimes the data we all assume and adapt and start spitting back out to tell our story isn't actually the correct data at all, just like with red Mm -hmm. shirts. So sorry, blue shirts, I'm not talking about you at all. (laughs) (laughs) And truly, when you think about the sheer numbers of red shirts compared to the others, like that makes sense that you would have more frequency just in relation to right the sheer number of them but they're the workhorses right their job is security so they put themselves in more physical danger as well but even so they don't diet as high of a percentage rate as the leadership Mm -hmm. positions do so you know (laughs) don't read too deep into that one but let's all be very responsible (laughs) about our data and the assumptions that we make that's all oh my gosh Casey can we not be super proud of our data nerd Emily she has come so far in her love for data I'm so impressed. I love it. Data hater no more. Data hater no more. That's for sure. So in the connection that I had, when I think of the colors of shirts, it also draws a distinction for hierarchy and rank as Casey described, Mm. right? And so when I think of traditional hierarchy and rank, you think of who's the commander and who's under the commander and that sort of thing. And so I see a lot of, especially from systems levels, a lot of traditional hierarchy maybe not being as effective as it had in the past. And especially when we think of new generations or Gen Z and how they approach advocacy and that sort of thing that we've talked about from our other episodes on Gen Z. I think it's interesting to maybe consider how those uniforms describe what we do and how we do things 
things. And if we're only operating from a hierarchy mindset, we might be able to shift that and get higher or different levels of productivity from your organization. And I also think about, Emily, I did a little also reading on some of the fandom sites. And believe it or not, you two, have you noticed when you go back to the 80s, late 80s, early 90s rendition of Next Generation, actually, Jean-Luc Picard wears red. And he, it yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so, and honestly, the reason they say that they did that was because the yellow or gold washed him and his second in command out. So it was purely an aesthetic oh. thing. <laughs> but I think that that's interesting too, is not just living and dying by yeah. those initial roles in the hierarchy, but also being able to differentiate or challenge or think through how it could be different for the sake of the people that you have within your system. Yeah, right on. And that's how we yeah. learned that Patrick Stewart is a summer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's awesome. Brilliant. <laughs> All right. So that one was, that had a lot. That was jam-packed. But let's, yes, let's I loved jump it. into something different. So Casey, can you run us through the, please tell me if I'm pronouncing this wrong as well, but the Kobayashi Maru. Did I say that correctly? Perfect. Perfect. So the Kobayashi Maru is almost a canon-esque moment in Star Trek training or when you're going to first become a member of Star Trek. So during their academy years, they're essentially faced with this no-win scenario where the crew has to decide if they're going to save their sister ship, which is the Kobayashi Maru. But if they do so, they risk destroying themselves in the process because they're going to draw enemy fire that are currently attacking the Kobayashi Maru. And it originally showed up in, I'm sorry, nerding out here, Wrath of Khan, but it peaks in other franchise moments as well. We saw it in modern version. I'm sorry. I'm such a dork. (laughs) So the only way Kirk, Kirk is the only member of the Starfleet Academy that beats the simulation and it's by rigging the system (laughs) so that he can do both at the same time so that's kind of the gist all right i have feelings about this one so (laughs) stick with stick with me for a minute here i hate to say so this might be an unpopular opinion but i'm just gonna say it because we do that on this show i'm thinking a little bit about standardized testing when i think about the kobayashi maru Because let's be honest, when we think about what is best for our students and is best reflective of real, authentic learning on their part, filling out bubbles in a booklet like Mm -hmm. they do for state standardized testing, let's be real, that's not what's best for kids. And that's not really reflective of their actual learning. They're not doing any authentic tasks. It's just being sent in to be scored and then to create data. So I'm going to go right back to the data hate zone here for a second. (laughs) It's not the data that I take issue with. It's the actual process and what it feels like for kids. I don't think it's the best situation for them. Lose there. But it's also a lose-lose situation because if we don't do it, then there's no other real way that anyone has figured out so far to look at the data for all different schools and kind of compare them and figure out that accountability piece. And, And I definitely get why that is important and why we all need to be accountable for doing the best work that we can for our kids. But right now, you gotta do it. But doing it isn't what's best for kids. So it's kind of like this circular logic in a lose-lose situation. And I kind of wonder if hacking it like Kirk, like figuring out a different way to assess students and to take data on how they're doing and how well their learning is going is really the answer to that. And unfortunately, I don't know the hack. Otherwise, we'd be making millions of dollars writing my book right now. But no. (laughs) I'll jump in right here because Emily, I 
also have written down here standardized tests. That's where my brain went. Same thing, like that impossible situation. And I, again, where I can even spin off from what you even said is thinking of proficiency levels and we're constantly hoping for them to get to a certain proficiency level. And if they're not there, what are we doing? Yes, we need standardized testing as a metric to help us. It becomes a problem when it's the outcome. If that's the goal, then we're a little bit off kilter and it's not what's best for kids. We can use it as a data point. We can use it as a metric. We need it in order to have national norming, right? But thinking about it from a different lens in the metric versus the outcome really does, for me, helps spin it in a way that can be more helpful. And then lastly, in thinking about how, Casey, you mentioned Kirk, especially the the, the one scene that I was watching from the 60s version is where he's like, I changed the conditions. <laughs> I changed the conditions, right. did. And so sometimes we just have to change those conditions of how we are thinking about student learning and measuring student learning. Again, it just can't be the end all be all. Yeah, nice. And we are lockstep. Yep. Like All it. right, what you got, Casey? <laughs> Except for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it could be because I have context, right? Like the purpose of this is to really, of the simulation, is to kind of bring out in the cadet, like their resolve, their ability to think logically in a moment of crisis and to choose the position that they can most stand by. So my connection is mostly related to the world of leadership, right? A leader has to be able to make decisions that sometimes feel like no win and I'm going to go here. The Kobayashi Maru is a simulation of life and death. Our schools are becoming increasingly unsafe spaces. And so a leader or a principal may not ever find themselves in a life or death situation, but that is the reality that face a number of our principals, a number of our teachers, and a number of our leaders. And the only thing you can do is do the next best right thing and see the path and know that you're going to commit to to doing the thing, even though it's going to be unpopular because you're going to rest on that resolve. So bouncing around, and I think that transcends education, but we as leaders have to make right and ethical decisions based on the information we have, based on what's right for our crew. And that's the purpose of the simulation. And I think the lesson we take away, we're not always going to have everybody's support in doing a thing, but we have to be able to lay our heads down at night and say, I did the best that I could with the information that I had, and I'm going to stand by my decision. Super encouraging. Yeah, for real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, the hard parts. And then it also, is. like, how I do you try. Yeah, how do you take it? Way to spin it into the encouraging yeah. realm. Yeah. Uh, I also caught a little yes. peek of Frozen 2 in there for anybody yes. catching that, that quote. Yes. I got it. <laughs> I say that quote all the time. I'm going to do the next right thing as a leader or as a coach, like, I'm not perfect. I can't expect to be perfect. No one can expect that of me. So I just got to do the next best thing, next right thing. You yeah. got Grounded El Guild if you want us to do a Frozen episode. All right. <laughs> on, we go. on we go. So this next one is, is character specific. And this is about Spock and his logic and emotion. Yes, the beautiful Vulcan dual role leader from in between half Vulcan, half human Spock, which gives us some of the greatest character 
internal turmoil and struggle that we see in Star Trek. And I think for me, I see Spock perfectly echoed in the role of a modern teacher. Like we have to think about the emotional needs of our students in front of us, yes, but also operate in both a logic and kind and human way with the kids that we see with our colleagues. And it's a lot to kind of juggle and to figure out. So I see Spock as he's got the logic. Our teachers know what's right for kids, know what good instruction looks like. And they're having to balance these emotional needs of kids and themselves. Oh, that's good. I am along the lines (laughs) of, and correct me, Casey, I'm going to lean on you for this one because I know you know the answer. But Spock is technically an extraterrestrial, right? He's not human. He's half. He's, His mom that's is right, human. That's right. Okay. So thank you for clarifying that. But then also where my connection went with is I'm thinking about our neurodiversity episode. And I think mm-hmm. he displays some elements of what we see in neurodiversity and what that could look like and how it presents in our emotions and how we, we are logic. Or sometimes we lean heavily in the logic realm and need some of the, the interpersonal emotional skills that we, mm-hmm. we need to bolster or we're working on, right? And so that's what I think of in Spock. Not necessarily that he is for sure neurodivergent. However, he, he could be and who knows if he is or isn't. Mm-hmm. But that's where I see that in how he approaches many of the conversations and the topics where neurotypical people that surround him are trying to understand him. And so he does a good mm-hmm. job of bringing them into that. I, I'm just thinking of the one episode in the most recent, and I, I wish I knew, but I don't know, one of the movie clips <laughs> that we had <laughs> research for this one, uh, but where she was just like, Spock, why did you do it this way? And he, and he brings her into the fold that way. So just being welcoming and understanding of how we approach the way our brains function is important as well. Mm-hmm. And Spock is a really good representation of that. Dude, I love that. And especially considering what a core member of the team he is. I really like Mm -hmm. that. You brought that out and shout out from the neurodiversity corner. I love that too. Casey, I actually was thinking about when you had said the personality typing for the uniform colors. That's what I was thinking about for this one because interesting. in Jane Kesey's book, Differentiated Coaching, she begins by talking about pluralities and pluralities that rather than working against each other, feed each other. Mm -hmm. So like the plurality she uses as the exemplar is doing what's best for teachers and doing what's best for students, not necessarily being things that have to work against each other, but things that actually feed and strengthen each other. What doing what's best for teachers does help us do what's best for students and doing what's best for students is what's best for teachers and so forth. These concepts feed themselves. And same things with Spock and his use of logic, but also in development of his emotions. I think it makes him a stronger member of the team that he is logical. And I would argue that some of his more emotional moments pack more of a punch. Oh, they are. Yeah, he's so logical. Like in the Wrath of Khan and uh, spoilers, but yeah, like yeah. you get the real tearjerkers out of Spock when he brings the emotion because he's usually so logical. So I just thought of those mm-hmm. important pluralities. Yeah. And Vulcan emotion is incredibly strong and it's yeah. simply their culture that trains them to suppress that emotion. Oh my God, I am so shocked by how insanely nerdy <laughs> I'm being right own it (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. all right so the next one comes from one of the one of the jj abrams movies right star trek beyond 
This has to do with a particular scene featuring sabotage. Casey, break it down. Yes. So I just realized with some initial research that very rarely do the Beastie Boys ever give permission to use their music in films or advertising. And there's so many Star Trek references in Beastie Boys music. Not this song specifically, but I thought that was a really cool little nod. Mm -hmm. But during this very famous and semi-controversial scene for the use of 90s music in events that take place 250 years in the future, it's fine. As a way to confuse the crawl ships that are currently preparing to attack Earth, the Starship Enterprise does some signal jamming in order to get all of the crawl ships to crash into each other because they communicate with each other via a psycho hive mind kind of thing. And so in order to disrupt their signals, the crew plays the Beastie Boys song Sabotage in order to confuse and destroy the ships so they can descend safely into Earth. Can I can so. I just say that you said it's semi-controversial, but if you think about it, one of the lines that they do say is, is this classical music? So they try and like at least <laughs> play out how we realize this is hundreds of years in the yes, future. But play with it. <laughs> it is an absolute banger. Classical song. It's so amazing. good. So good. So I'll go first on this one. So I'm just thinking about the part where they're focusing on the disruption frequency. And in brain science, and when we think of just how we approach learning in general, when we're overstimulated or dysregulated, how the brain's limbic mm -hmm. system is taking over and it makes it hard to actually really get to the higher taxonomy levels of learning. So that's what I was thinking of is like, hey, if we're going to like throw a yeah. bunch of the stimulation at you or this music at you so that it can kind of like disrupt things, that's often what's happening either to our teachers or our educator leaders or our students when they're overstimulated and there's a lot of disruption going on. And so how do we lower that to be able to be more effective and, and impactful? Well, I, I love that you brought that up because my connection is related to kind of the trauma mm -hmm. side of things. That stimulation can come from students or teachers coming to work and showing up with trauma in their backpacks and them still having to think logically, to solve complex problems, to teach, to show love and care to students and colleagues. That can be quite crippling, which is why we see a lot of educator burnout and educators leaving the profession. So my connection is similar. Mine has to do with distraction and inability to focus as well. So we're on a similar vein, <laughs> but you guys are going to laugh at me because I'm going to sound like a crusty old person here. But I was literally just thinking like cell phones in the classroom. So like sabotage oh. is like the cell phone. It just breaks up the ability to communicate and collaborate all as a group. If even like one or two people are on their phones and it just breaks the whole flow of your class communication when somebody's just zoning out. It's so cool. It's like sabotage. You just can't compete with it, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that's going to be the loudest and most interesting thing that just hijacks focus and changes the whole vibe is mm -hmm. the cell phone. So sorry, Beastie Boys. And I also have already <laughs> dishonored them by rapping. So it's getting worse. <laughs> I know. I wish I, I think our listeners need to hear you rap Beastie's Boys again. Oh, what episode did you do that in? No. What episode did you do that in? Um... Was it Gen Z? I think it, it was. was Gen Z. It was yeah. Gen oh, Z. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. So to all of our all of our lovers and haters, sorry about that. <laughs> Speed rounds on the last two. All right. Yeah, we got to move around faster. I'm sorry. That's probably my fault. I've had a lot to say. <laughs> no, it's girl. It's me. <laughs> I, I'm the problem. I'm the problem it's me. It's me. Again, the norm. Why do we even bother? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Sorry, Jenny. So I'll. 
I'll kick us off with this next one and feel free to say ditto. So this is a very specific moment. As I mentioned, I've been watching Strange New Worlds, Star Trek, the newest offering, which is phenomenal. It's classic Star Trek with this new little twist. And in a recent episode of this season, spoilers, Ahura is currently driven mad and is hallucinating things. And we discover that this alien race is tapping into a frequency in her brain to try to tell her or communicate with her through images that what the Enterprise uses for fuel, it's currently harvesting from this the nebula where they're currently at. But as it's harvesting this raw material to fuel the ship, it's actually sucking in this alien race at the same time. And only Uhura can hear this alien race's pleas for help. So she goes to Kirk and says, you need to stop what you're doing dispel all of this energy you're killing this alien race and that's not what starfleet stands for you have to stop this mission to like mine all of these materials because there's people living here and without questioning her without really needing that solid foundation that data that says that this is the right decision he listens to her and does it and gets that affirmation and ends up saving her in the process. And I think good leaders surround themselves not just with yes people, but people who are willing to say the hard things. And good leaders trust the voices of the people they surround themselves with. So I got goosebumps when I watched this and made this connection. This is what we want to do as healthy, human-centered leaders. Listen to our people. That's why they're there for us. You wanted us to say ditto, or at least I can do that. I have literally written down here, (laughs) skillful listening. Yep. And mine is similar, but I was looking at it more through the leading of the students. And so I was just thinking of the incredible importance of our mental health professionals and our counselors, our social workers, Mm -hmm. the people in our schools who can do that active and important listening to kids, you know, because again, their Mm -hmm. pain and their their struggles might be flying completely under the radar of most Mm. just like that alien race like they weren't it wasn't visible to anyone but her but she was able to bring that to the people who needed it to be able to help for their greater good which is I think what in a a best functioning system what a good social worker or a psychologist or Mm. a counselor can even do for a student who's struggling is help those teachers then be aware so that they all work together as a team to help without question so good All right. And so our last one is more just a general piece of Star Trek's place in history and culture, and that is their history of diversity and collaboration. So the initial series of Star Trek came out in the 1960s, and that is one of the it's we typically know the 1960s as a time of freedom. Yes, but our civil rights movement really kicking up into high gear, those marginalized groups really wanting and demanding a voice at the table. And Gene Roddenberry was the first to put those characters who had power, who looked different on the screen and gave kids of any race, any any culture, someone that they could look up to. And these are the characters that we know and love that have... (laughs) 
transcended multiple generations. And the crew of the Enterprise reflects a diverse group. And I think because of that diversity, they're able to go to the far reaches of space and accomplish amazing things and save so many people. And I think this is what we need to start doing in our school systems, celebrating our diversity, giving all kids an opportunity to see the faces of themselves in their teachers and seeing those role models so that we can really continue to prosper as a society instead of going backwards in time. Ditto that. Representation matters. (laughs) It's important. And progress. Yes. Progress matters. The show was built to be, and and I think the reason it was able to do this as much as because it was supposed to be kind of this futuristic sort of utopia, but I think it's so great that they, rather than just shying away with that and just more white men calling all the shots, they they were able to lean into that diversity and really build kind of that ideal state and make that representation Mm -hmm. really count. We should too. Yep. Yep. And the history and future is colliding. It's a paradox if you think about it, because it is what we think of the history. This is a long running franchise that yeah. goes back many, many decades, but it's trying to represent the future. But maybe the future is now. And that's what I love about the paradox of those two. Awesome. Well, thanks for letting me nerd out on Star Trek, you guys. <laughs> Of course. Anytime. I always thought of myself as a Star Wars girl, which coming soon, an episode that is anchored in Star Wars. Ooh. But I'm realizing how much joy this series really does bring me and the tie-ins to our professional There life. goes Veach making more promises on future episodes. Yep. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Oops. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> okay, so we probably don't have time for a game, but we're going to do it anyways. Let's roll. <laughs> So with this particular game, I have challenged us to kind of think about, as Emily mentioned, Star Trek takes place in the future. And they have some fantastic tools that we actually now have some of them, some of the best tools, like the communicator, like that's our cell phones in our pockets, right? Mm -hmm. So what we're going to do is each going to pick a Star Trek tech item that we ourselves would like. And it's each of our GLG's job to guess what that person picked. Okay. Whoever wants to go first, please make a phaser noise now. Pew, 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 pew. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Okay. Had to. Emily, I am going for you to pick. Ooh, I'm torn. But I think I am going to pick a materialized. Oh, good. I'm going to do it as, as well. So, Casey, you say why and I'll say why. But we both are in yes. agreement on this one. Because Coffee 30 is real. And I want you to be able to have coffee whenever you want. And a materializer would bring it for you whenever you could create your own without having to make it yourself at home. Remember to make it yourself at home. And or pick it up from somewhere my rationale is similar in the sense of you love floral arranging and you also love cooking with awesome ingredients so this materializer would come really in handy for any of the above and the coffee that is so lovely and also true and that actually was my second choice oh Oh. my first choice was do i need to tell you i need i should tell you right universal translator transporters 
It was transporters. Oh. Whenever I'm asked what my superpower of choice would be, I always say teleportation. Like I would just <laughs> like to be beamed to wherever I could be on the beach. And then I could go get coffee wherever. I could go get I could go get a little espresso in Paris and then poof, I'm back at my job, you know, have my espresso, my coffee 30. Like, I don't know. I just want to be able to go where I want, when I want, wherever quickly and that has never been my reality. I've always been a bit of a commuter, Jenny, in case you know this. Yes. So, I don't know. I just feel like it would be really rad to go beam, be beamed. Beam you up, Emily. Beam me up. Love it. <laughs> All right, Jenny, you want to go next? I want to hear your noise. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. <laughs> I'm impressed. That's the best impression like you've ever it. done on this podcast. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> it's not hard. Not hard. It's <laughs> So I am torn on this one as well because I feel like the transporter would help you with your commute quite well. But I'm actually going to say a universal translator. And and here's why. I think you really enjoy traveling, getting a sense for what things are like in other places, other beach locations, and having access to a translator would, I think, help you learn a new language, yes, but also allow you to travel more fluidly to places and see new things and experience new things. I thought about that at first, but I also know that as a former language teacher that you probably feel a lot of love for the process of language acquisition. Ergo, I feel like that would steal some of your joy. So I actually <laughs> thought, especially because you you have had a situation before where all three of your kids are sick at the same time. I just thought universal medicine phasers. <laughs> All three kids are sick at the same time. I'm trying to remember remember when it wasn't like that. Uh, those two <laughs> are so much cooler than my choice. Here's where, like, oh, no. <laughs> I want it to be the cool choice, but I had to go with where, like, my six-year-old self, like, loved this from when I watched Star Trek first and foremost. And it's so lame because now it's, like, just so ubiquitous. But I wanted a lapel communicator. And it's like, we have those now. <laughs> like, it's so lame that I would pick that. But it's the first one that came to mind, even before seeing the list that you wrote out there, Aww. Casey. I wanted that lapel, probably because I also wanted to wear the uniforms because they are slick and cool. <laughs> they are cool. <laughs> so lame. I, because, really, that's not novel at all anymore. <laughs> But I, that's the one I <laughs> just, just pin that Apple watch to your shirt and right? call it a day. Duh. Duh. The other ones, it's like, come on, Jenny, dream a little. <laughs> that's funny. All right, Casey, let's okay. hear your phaser noise. Pew, 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 pew. It's so cute. <laughs> phasers. They're like little baby pink phasers. Adorable phasers. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I am... Hmm. I'm going to go with warp speed for you because you, okay. I think you are a multitasker. And I think that a lot of times you have a lot going on that you would like to be able to do it all at once a little bit. And you wear so many hats in the things that you do that I think warp speed would be something you could utilize to really great potential. Oh, interesting. Okay. And that one, Emily, I feel like she already works at warp speed, so she don't need it. She kind of <laughs> I mean, yeah, wrong. <laughs> so the one that I'm going for is the dermal regenerators, because usually like while we're on the screen, even this evening before recording, she's like, my skin looks so much 
better on this like yeah. she puts on the I filters and stuff today. so like she's working on the dermal regenerators she would appreciate that, <laughs> that one. called out oh called out for being vain. thank you so much or beautiful you know i love you boo i know i know so i have to give kudos to emily being Correct. And the only one this evening to have gotten winner, winner. I said warp speed because I do. I while I work fast, the beautiful thing about warp speed is you have a clear destination and it expedites your way the way you get there. And sometimes while I do work fast, it does take me a while to get my final vision and product where I want it to be. And the transporters, although cool, the way they sci-fi function is they destroy your body and then just make it elsewhere. And that freaks me out. (laughs) I'm like, whatever, bring it. Like you can get caught in that. Yeah, like claustrophobia. I'm like high alert. Yes. So I did pick warp speed. Although whenever my boys have skin knees, I think they would like the dermal regenerator very much. Very much. Don't have to worry about band-aids and pools. Fabulous. Well played. Hey, girls, we we did not meet our norm tonight, but it was a good one. No. Nope. <laughs> we had some It fun. was a joy. All right. Thanks for joining us. And that's a wrap. It's so good to be behind the mics talking to you all. Thanks for choosing to come around to engage with our guild's content as we passionately continue to advocate for adult learners with transparent conversations about the world of education, impactful leadership, and the power of high-functioning teams. If you'd like to connect, the power of the PLN continues as always, and you can find us on our website, thegroundedlearnersguild.com, and on Twitter at GroundedLGuild, at CVeacher, at TechCoachM, and at Jenny Labrie using the hashtag GLGPodChat. Do you even realize your feedback is everything? Feedback is a powerful tool that allows us to be responsive to the topics that matter to you most. If you haven't yet already or are finding us for the first time, how about leaving us a review as well as subscribing? You can find us wherever you stream. Thanks as always for tuning in to be a part of the Grounded Learners Guild. That's it for us, Casey, Emily, and me, Jenny, in today's episode. See you at the next Guild meeting. And don't forget, in the meantime, do your best to stay grounded.